0: I was talking to Rachel about topics for eventual episodes of this program. We started going on about which particular types of films that we haven't really covered yet and whether or not we should. And one thing we both agreed on is that we haven't really done a dad movie yet. And when I say dad movie, I mean it's uh, one of those things that would make a boomer parent sit in his lounge chair in the living room and after the movie's over, they just extol to themselves that they don't make them like that anymore. Uh, that's you, Gen Z kids, it's probably more of a grandpa movie. I'm thinking something like The Great Escape or Bullet or The French Connection or something like that. Uh, but one thing that Rachel really wanted to cover was The Bridge on the River Kwai, which does fall outside of the comfort zone of this show. So that's the one we're going to be handling here.
1: Yeah, and I thought after uh, the last episode we recorded was just me tormenting Ryan. I decided to you know, pick an actual good movie this time. <laughs>
0: I did have some internal debate over whether River Kwai counts as a dad movie, but then I thought of that Parks and Rec episode where Ron Swanson sits down (laughs) with a a steak and some whiskey and watches Bridge on the River Kwai on his birthday, and he's like, yeah, it's a dad movie, it counts. Yeah,
1: I feel like this does, and I feel like you could probably find it on some, like you know, Turner Classic Movies channel. Probably lasts about five hours long with commercials. <laughs>
0: so yeah, that's the one we're going to be doing with this. There is quite a bit to take apart here. Yeah, I so I feel
1: like this is this might actually break our record for our longest episode.
0: So yeah, in that's the funny. interest of not dilly dallying, my yes. name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive, okay. and Rachel is back yet again, Rachel yeah. co-host. Yeah. woohoo. So, why did you pick this film?
1: Because I thought it would make an interesting episode, and like you said, it's not a movie or type of movie that the show has really covered.
0: Yeah, we haven't done a war movie yet, like, at all.
1: And I also, I haven't watched the movie in probably around 10 years, and I really enjoyed it, and I feel like it's kind of a, you know, layered movie. There's a lot to talk about here from multiple different perspectives.
0: In the interest of that, let's get the plot recap out of the way. Okay. I'll try to be as brisk as possible, but this film is a bladder-busting two hours and 47 minutes. Yeah, so, and it,
1: and it feels like it. I mean, this movie is a slow burn. It has a good payoff, but you're here for a while.
0: Yeah, I'm not saying that it's it, it's badly paced. It's actually very well paced, oh, yeah. but it definitely feels as long as it does because of its epic scope. Something we'll be talking about later, I'm oh, yeah. sure. All
1: right. Touch up. Let's go.
0: All right. The film is set in a Japanese POW camp in Burma sometime in early 1943. The first scene involves Lieutenant Commander Shears burying some of the many POWs who have died from disease, malnutrition, overwork, or suicide. He then bribes a guard with a lighter he stole off one of the corpses in order to be placed on the sick list. This is what we call establishing what his character is. We'll We'll be seeing more examples of that from Shears later on. Later that day, a group of British POWs arrive by train. Colonel Saito, who is the commandant of the POW camp, he informs them that all of the prisoners, regardless of rank, are to work on the construction of a railway bridge on the River Kwai that will connect Bangkok to Rangoon. Senior British officer Colonel Nicholson objects, citing that the Geneva Conventions exempt officers from manual labor. He offers to show Saito the specific passage in the Geneva Conventions that he just carries in his pocket, but Saito claims that this is unnecessary, which Nicholson misunderstands. Later that night, Nicholson explicitly forbids his men from making an escape attempt, citing that the group was given orders to surrender, and Nicholson believes that an escape attempt would be a defiance of these orders. This is a trade of Nicholson's that will be coming back later on in the film. Shears is in this meeting, and he objects this rationale. So Nicholson points out that the remote location of the POW camp makes escape both dangerous and incredibly implausible. Saito, when he is...
1: Welcoming people to
0: the camp. I did. I wanted to use a different word besides welcome, but yes. He points out that they do not have fences or guard towers or anything like that because they're in the middle of the damn jungle and hundreds of miles away from a nearby village. So, yeah, go ahead and try to make a break for it. See how well it does. Yep. Shears counters uh, Nicholson's rationale by mentioning the high mortality rate of those who remain in the camp. More on that later, especially when we're talking about the film's historical accuracy. At the morning assembly, Nicholson orders his officers to remain behind as the enlisted men are marched off to work on the bridge. Saito threatens to gun them down, but medical officer Major Clifton uh, warns Saito that there are far too many witnesses and that he won't be able to write this off as an escape attempt. So Saito simply leaves the officers to stand all day in the intense heat. After dark, he sends the officers to a punishment hunt while Nicholson is locked inside a small iron box.
1: Yeah, and I just want to uh, step in to say that if you watch this movie, even if you're sitting in a very nice, cool, air-conditioned room, you will feel... Hot and sweaty. This is a very hot movie. Everyone just melts.
0: We will be discussing how David Lean's directorial approach tries to skirt the difference between character study and grandiose epic. In this one, he hasn't quite fallen onto one side or the other. Meanwhile, three prisoners attempt to escape. Two of them are shot dead, but Lieutenant Commander Shears is able to slip away, albeit wounded. He staggers through the jungle uh, half dead by the time he gets to a Siamese village. They nurse him back to health before sending him on his way in a rowboat with modest provisions. He's eventually spotted by British forces on the colony of uh, Ceylon, which is uh, modern-day Sri Lanka. Mm-hmm. Back in the POW camp, the prisoners work as little as possible on the bridge and they sabotage things whenever they can.
1: Yeah, but, like the, the first like structure it just keeps how many times did it just tip over into the river?
0: I wasn't keeping specific count.
1: At least two.
0: Yeah, they do. Uh, Lean does drive that home. Mm-hmm. Now, Saito is getting increasingly upset about this because if he fails to complete the bridge on schedule, he has to commit ritual suicide. But he's backed into a corner because he insists that the officers work on the bridge and they're defying him and he has to be tough. Desperate to find a way to get the British prisoners to be more cooperative while saving face. He uses the anniversary of Japan's 1905 victory in the Russo-Japanese War to grant amnesty to the British officers and then exempt them from manual labor. However, he does cry intensely once he is by himself.
1: Yeah. Like, I think you know, I want to interrupt the recap slightly just to bring up one of the topics I want to talk about later. The first half of the movie, which is just Saito versus Nicholson, it, it's pretty much like, it's a war movie, but it's a psychological battle between who Who's going to win? You have two men from cultures that, you know, pride, you know, keeping you know, keeping face. You've got the British stiff upper lip and, you know, the Japanese sense of honor versus each other. Who's going to win?
0: And Saito clearly tries to manipulate him. He pulls Nicholson out, tries to feed him, give him some nice wine, says that he's going to pull the sick and injured prisoners and force them to work on the bridge, which is essentially a death sentence. But Nicholson doesn't budge and Saito winds up being the one who blinks.
1: Yeah, and I think he kind of loses when he admits to Nicholson that he has to commit suicide. That was too much information to give your enemy prisoner.
0: Yeah, that was of no benefit to to Saito, and of great benefit to Nicholson. Suddenly, he had the upper hand. Mm -hmm. However, once Nicholson is released, he is appalled by the shoddy workmanship on this bridge.
1: And like his men have the right idea. Like those, those two guys who are always seen together in scenes, they're like, oh, yeah, we, we had a sick guy. We, we had to take him, you know, to the hospital oh, and he needed at least four men to carry him, you know, wink, wink, hint, hint, nudge, nudge. And Nicholson's, why are you making that face?
0: Yeah, and uh, men are just, like, casually diving and swimming around in the river in the background. Yeah,
1: it's like summer camp shenanigans and not, you know, slave labor in a POW camp.
0: More on that later as well. Put a pin in that. Yeah. Nicholson promptly orders the engineers among his men to design a proper bridge. Some of his officers object, claiming that doing such a thing would be aiding and abetting the enemy. Nicholson rebuts by claiming that building a good bridge would be positive for prisoner morale and would demonstrate the pride of British professionalism under pressure. Nicholson then presents a detailed plan to Saito, including a suggestion to move the construction several hundred yards downstream uh, because the proposed location, given by the Japanese engineers, is a poor location Uh, it's very muddy. There's no way that a bridge will sit on there, he has no bottom.
1: Yeah, and that scene when the the Brits present their decision to the Japanese, you can kind of tell that the Japanese officers uh, under Saito are kind of like, oh yeah, something something's going on. Like Nicholson wants tea. He starts kind of giving the orders and he does, you know, the Captain Morgan pose on the chair at the end. And I think next to the earlier scene where Nicholson and Saito talk to each other, that's really when the power balance shifts all the way to Nicholson instead of Saito.
0: Meanwhile, Shears is enjoying his hospital stay, complete with an attractive nurse, when British Major Ward invites him on a mission to destroy the bridge before it becomes strategically useful to Japanese forces. Horrified at the prospect of returning to the camp, Shears confesses that he isn't actually an officer, and that he switched clothing with a dead man before he was captured, thinking that officers would get better treatment uh, from the Japanese. Warden then reveals that he already knew this, and that, to avoid embarrassment, the American Navy had already transferred Shears to the uh, British hands. Sort of backed into a corner by this information, Shears volunteers scare quotes for the mission.
1: Yeah, I think that that scene is really good. I like the very, you know, stuffy British people versus, you know, Shears, when I say that Shears is American, he's like, discount John Wayne cowboy American.
0: He acts like that throughout the movie, just being a rough and ready-I-play-by-my-own-rules-our-American-cousin old uh, type of uh, American that you often see in war movies.
1: Yeah, like, we don't care about the, you know, the stuffy, the stuffy British. And, like, I think one of the best moments is when he admits that he's never parachuted before. And they're like, oh, we're going to give you some practice jump. And he goes, for with or without a parachute. And the Brits, they think that's fucking hilarious. They just start laughing. They're like, good show, good show.
0: <laughs> and then later on, they're like, the instructors have told us that if you do 10 jumps, there's a good chance that be entered on one of them, so we're just going to give you a pack and hope for the best.
1: Yeah, oh, uh, okay. Oof. <laughs>
0: While that's going on, Nicholson strives to complete the bridge on schedule, much to the concern and confusion of his men. It becomes an obsession of him. Nicholson even compels his officers to work on the bridge, which is what he was suffering in the box to avoid in the first half of the movie. And
1: also he wants some of the less sick men on the sick list. Like, people, they all follow him limping out.
0: Yeah, he gives them each light duties. <sighs> Once the bridge is completed, Nicholson confesses to Saito that as he gets older, he's been wondering if his life has amounted to much, and he refers to the, the, to the bridge as a symbol of craftsmanship that will endure after the war has ended. This is something that we will be discussing in further depth when we get to the thematic pr- uh, portions of this episode. Yeah,
1: and if you do the math when Nicholson's talking about his time in service, he probably enlisted right as, you know, World War I was starting to pick up pace. So he spent all of this time, and a lot of it, well, I will bring this up again later as we talk about themes, he spent a lot of time in India, and the fact that there's sort of this colonial colonizer themes going on in the background of this movie, especially the way Nicholson treats the men and the way he talks about how he wants them to work. Got the very, we're British, we know what we're doing, the sun never sets on the British Empire, although at this point, with the end of World War Two coming around the corner, the British Empire is on its way out.
0: Shears and Warden uh, parachute a- enemy territory with the overeager Canadian Lieutenant Joyce alongside them. He's as- so
1: cute, he says a boot.
0: And then there's another commando, a fourth guy who was killed upon landing, so I'm not going to bother giving you his name. They travel alongside Siamese women who are bearing their loads and uh, Kunyai, a village chief who resents the Japanese for abducting all the village men and forcing them into menial labor. warden is wounded in an encounter with the Japanese patrol and, despite insisting upon being left behind, is carried on a litter at Shears' insistence.
1: Yeah, more conflict between, you know, British stuffy lip and American, well, I say this is how we're going to do things around here.
0: Despite the setback, the commandos arrive to the river on schedule and plant plastic explosives on the bridge towers below the waterline. A train carrying important dignitaries is scheduled to cross the bridge the next day, so Warden wishes to blow the charges then. By daybreak, the river level has dropped to a point where the wires connecting the explosives to the detonator have been exposed. This is noticed by Nicholson, who baffles Shears and Warden by pointing it out to Saito. Nicholson follows the wire to the detonator being manned by Joyce, who emerges from cover to kill Saito, who's been following alongside Nicholson. Nicholson then attacks Joyce in order to keep him from blowing up the bridge. Japanese guards, alerted by the scuffle, shoot Joyce dead. Shears has been swimming a lot over to the conflict at this point, but he's also shot. Recognizing the dying Shears, Nicholson comes to his senses and exclaims, What have I done? Probably the most iconic line in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nicholson is then wounded by mortar fire from Warden. Uh, dazed by the explosion, Nicholson collapses on the detonator, blowing up the bridge just as the ch- uh, train is crossing. Appalled by the carnage, Clifton shakes his head and mutters, Madness, madness, the last line in the film, and that is it.
1: Yeah, and I know we kind of breezed through the ending sequence. It's a tense scene, even though it, it is very suspenseful, even though you know that eventually the, the bridge is going to blow up. But it's still kind of like, it's a nail biter because it they really stretch out the tension.
0: And another facet of Lean's direction that is carried over from his smaller, more quiet films into his larger, grandiose, epic ones. I was getting kind of tired, I needed to work the next morning while I was watching it, but I was still riveted by that sequence, it is incredibly well paced.
1: Oh, yeah, and I I want to, I know we're going to talk a little more about characters, but you know how Saito, he cuts off his top knot, he's he's written a letter, and he's stuck it inside his jacket, and then he goes and he follows Nicholson. Do you think that he was going to kill Nicholson to save his face, and then kill himself afterwards, because... Killing a prisoner, maybe he would think that that wasn't such a great idea, or was he just planning to kill himself after the bridge was completed?
0: I haven't really thought about it, although that does lead to the um, dynamics between the real-world people who Nicholson and Sido are based upon.
1: Yeah, which we'll get into, but food for thought.
0: First thing I want to talk about, uh, is the source novel. This was written by Pierre Boulle, and is based on his personal experiences as a POW in this part of the world. Boulle might be better known to some people for writing Planet of the Apes.
1: Yeah, I think that's such a random like genre shift, but you know what? It means he's a man
0: of many talents. Yeah, uh, Boulle was enlisted in the French army at the outbreak of World War II and served in Singapore and throughout Indochina. He supported Charles de Gaulle uh, as uh, free French forces after the surrender, and he was captured by uh, Vichy French uh, loyalists who were collaborating with the Nazis while serving as a secret agent for resistance efforts in uh, China, Burma, and the area. Later on, he was made a Chevalier of the Légion d'Honneur and decorated with the Croix de Guerre and uh, Medal de la Résistance. He kept in touch with his war comrades for the rest of his life and... He did two different versions of his experiences. The first was an autobiographical account known as My Own River Kwai. And The Bridge on the uh, Over the River Kwai, which this, is, this film is based on, published in 1952, which was a far more fictionalized account. And it sold several b- million copies, big old hit, got optioned for a film right away.
1: Yeah, because this movie came out in 1957. That's a a very fast turnaround from book to movie.
0: Yes, it is. Now, the screenplay was begun by Carl Foreman and completed by Michael Wilson when director uh, David Lean expressed disappointment with the first draft. He thought that it was too melodramatic and that Saito was depicted as a simplistic B-movie villain, and there wasn't much conflict between him and Nicholson at the beginning of the story.
1: (laughs) Which we need.
0: Both Foreman and Wilson were on the Hollywood blacklist related to McCarthyism, so... Mm -hmm. Yeah, official credit was given to Boole, even though he didn't speak English and therefore (laughs) almost certainly didn't work on the screenplay. Uh, Oh, dear. (laughs) Lean also claimed to have written much of the script, but was claimed to have been cheated out of uh, official credits by producer Sam Spiegel. Subsequent releases credit Foreman and Wilson. Kim Novak accepted the Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar on behalf of Boole, who did not attend the ceremony, probably because he didn't actually write the movie and felt a little embarrassed. Yeah. I haven't read the novel myself. Usually when I do one of these episodes, I try to track the book down and read it if the movie is based on a book, but I couldn't find a library copy on any of the reading apps I have, and I didn't feel like dropping 15 bucks just to read it, so. Yeah,
1: this is is a movie podcast, as we've discussed in other episodes.
0: I did read like a little Cliff Notes thing that was on Hoopla and a couple other accounts, and there are, it was mostly loyal to the source novel, except for two major exceptions. In the book, Shears is also British, he is not American, that was changed for this film. And the bridge is not destroyed in the novel's climax, which I think is an important change.
1: Yeah, I think that no matter what, you need to blow up the bridge. Like, I think that this movie has, like, the ending is a downer, you know. Most of the named characters are dead in the grand scheme of things. Blowing up one bridge is not going to make a huge difference. But the bridge needs to be destroyed for it to be a good and fair
0: ending. In the novel, Warden does derail the train with a secondary charge, but Nicholson never has his what-have-I-done moment uh, where he collapses on the plunger, so the bridge only suffers minor damage as a whole. Bull claimed that he enjoyed the film, although he disliked the ending, which is understandable.
1: Yeah, I guess it's understandable, but we need that Nicholson moment of clarity when it's just really too late, even if he does, whether intentionally or not, hit the plunger. Do you think that he fell on it on purpose, or do you think that it was an accident? Or are you like me and like the ambiguity?
0: I like the ambiguity. I think it's a nice little comeback, Shane, moment.
1: Yeah, same.
0: Uh, Yeah, speaking of revisionism, let's go into the historical accuracy of both the film and the novel. Uh, First off, Bull intended the novel to be uh, fictional. There is a more historically accurate autobiographical account, as I mentioned earlier. Now, the main complaint that is made is that the conditions amongst Japanese POWs in this part of the world during World War II are much worse than how they're depicted in the novel. Uh, specifically, for the actual bridge that was built between those two landmarks, uh, Burma and Siam, about 13,000 POWs and 100,000 civilians who are, are um, estimated to have died while the structures were being erected. That's a lot.
1: Yeah. This movie, it gets hot and sweaty and grim, but it's nowhere near as visceral as that description.
0: Yeah, the studio believed that if they did a more accurate account of the suffering that the POWs experienced, the film would be too much of a downer and no one would want to see it. We're a couple of decades away from the deer hunter. But that led to you know actual POWs who experienced the, these instances to cry foul. Yeah,
1: I mean... It, Remember when Dunkirk came out a few years ago, there' still is a you know, very old man who, who was there and said that it was for the most part accurate.
0: Yeah, and if you think that historians can be insufferable when pointing out inaccuracies in historical fiction and movies that you like, military historians in particular.
1: Oh, yeah, like, my dad was just, like, watching Aliens, my dad, who's a veteran, watching Aliens with me, and he's like, yeah, like, at this point, you'd think that they wouldn't be sending actual people in to, you know, investigate the destroyed colony. They'd send in like, a robot with a camera on it.
0: (laughs) Nicholson's closest real-world analog is a lieutenant colonel named Philip Tusi who was the ranking officer amongst prisoners who were building a bridge in Thailand. Most of the people who lived under Tusi in the POW camp really resented this film because it implied that Tusi's counterpart, Nicholson, was a collaborator with the Japanese, and Tusi for his part, actively encouraged sabotage, including strategic placement of termites.
1: No, a little fuckers,
0: lead anything. Yeah, several former POWs suggested that someone like Nicholson wouldn't have become a ranking officer with his attitude, and if he acted like that in the POW camp that they were in, uh, he would have been met in an unfortunate accident.
1: Yeah, I can see there being, you know, dissension in the ranks very easily, especially if Shears hadn't escaped, and he and Nicholson had actually had to work together longer than they did in the movie.
0: Yeah, conversely, Colonel Saito is based on a real person named Colonel Saito. Bull didn't change his name.
1: In, re- in real life than he is in fiction?
0: Yes, compared to the other Japanese officers who were in charge of POW camps, which isn't saying much, looking at the fatality list, Saito was apparently reasonable and humane. He was at the very least willing to negotiate with prisoners for their labor. After the war ended and various Japanese officials were put on trial for war crimes, Tusi actually testified on Saito's behalf and... His testimony likely saved him from the gallows. Saito internalized this. When Tusi died, he made a pilgrimage to his grave.
1: Yeah, that, I read about that. It, it, that's almost, a, well, it could be a movie of its own versus, you know, French on the River Cry where you've got, you know, Nicholson, stuffy British guy versus this version of Saito.
0: Uh, yeah, we could go on about the historical undercurrents of this film for a while, but uh, let's talk about the production of the film itself. Wee. A lot of people were considered for this beforehand. It's a big movie. They went through a lot of people before they came to it. Uh, John Ford, which doesn't, doesn't surprise me, was considered. Uh, William Wyler, Nicholas Ray, Howard Hawks, Fred Zinman, uh Orson Welles, actually.
1: That would have been interesting, though. Yeah,
0: he was offered a starring role, although I do not know who. Yeah,
1: I guess. Just- he has multiple characters
0: they eventually settled on lean and lean needed this bad he was going through a messy divorce and was cash strapped and was really eager to jump onto a project as soon as he signed on he borrowed two thousand dollars just to get dental surgery
1: <laughs> oh, that's just kind of sad
0: The bridge itself uh, cost $250,000 to build in 1957 money, which makes it one of the most expensive set pieces up to that point.
1: I like that. You know, I feel that if the movie was made now, would the bridge have just been a green screen? Because, like, when they blow it up, they're really blowing up the structure.
0: Yeah, more on that in a bit. Yep. Yeah, construction on it began before casting had even begun. Yeah, while they took some time to track down the actual River Kwai location, they found that it was an unsuitable location for filming. It wasn't a particularly impressive looking river, it had died <laughs> down to a trickle. So they shot it just somewhere else in Sri Lanka that they thought was more photogenic.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a movie! <laughs>
0: For the role of Nicholson, they had approached a number of people. Uh, Spencer Tracy at first, but Tracy, after reading the, the, the screenplay, insisted that an Englishman should play the character.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know how well Spencer Tracy... He's a good actor. If he, Maybe if Nicholson was American, maybe... But is he Does he, is he even good at doing a British accent?
0: I couldn't tell you. Okay. Uh, yeah, they uh, they talked to James Mason. They approached Charles Lawton, who turned it down because he had no idea how he could get his head around the character. They asked Sir Lawrence Olivier, but he declined in order to direct The Prince and the Showgirl. Later on, <laughs> clipping that he would rather do makeout scenes with Marilyn Monroe than suffer in the jungle with David Lean for Oscar bait.
1: That was probably the right decision, all things considered. <laughs>
0: Alec Guinness was, um, somebody that uh, producer Spiegel liked quite a bit, but, uh, Guinness was reluctant to take the part. Uh, up until now, he, uh, at th- that point, he was best known for comedies.
1: Yeah, I've seen the lady, the original Lady Killers, Very funny and creepy in that
0: He also thought that the novel and the screenplay had an anti-British undercurrent to it, which Boole vehemently denied, but... I can see where he's coming from.
1: Yeah, I I feel like the way Nicholson acts is very influenced by his upper class, probably went to Sandhurst. I worked in India upbringing. It wouldn't have worked if he was from anywhere else or not from the upper class.
0: And Jack Hawkins, who played Warden in the film, uh, he uh, talked uh, Guinness into taking, like, a dinner date with Lean and and producer Spiegel in order to talk about the part. And Spiegel just had such a great gift for Gab. By the end of the meal, like an hour later, they were talking about what type of hairstyle Guinness would have in the film.
1: <laughs> he still maintains his, you know, Britishy mustache.
0: For the part... Uh, shears. There's a number of other people who were approached for that at first. Humphrey Bogart, which I believe right away. Cary Grant was offered the part, interesting considering he's English, but he turned it down. I
1: feel like Cary Grant would have been a terrible choice for shears.
0: Bridge on the River Kwai had an eight-month shoot, which is a long-ass time. Yeah,
1: that's a very long shoot, especially under the, you know, the, the circumstances.
0: The cast and the crew were beset by snakes, leeches, and if you look at this film for even two minutes, you will not be surprised to find that lots of people got dysentery and fevers and other lots of uh, things that made them puke and poop very nastily.
1: What about sunburns? Like, all of the laborers? Ugh, just roasted.
0: David Lean did not complain. He apparently felt right at home in the jungle. Although he almost drowned in a river and was saved by Jeffrey Horn, who played Joyce. Yeah, yeah, Lieutenant Joyce. Which
1: is funny because Joyce is brought onto the mission because he's a good swimmer.
0: Yeah, that's 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 cute. The producers were concerned with the all male cast, so the Shears sleeping with the nurse subplot was just sort of casually shoehorned into the movie to give at least one woman with a speaking role.
1: Yeah, they don't want it to be, you know, a sausage fest, and and there are, you know, the the female carriers from the village who are all played by, you know, actual what is it, Thai actresses.
0: Yes, they're living in the vicinity of uh, Siam, so they'd be Thai.
1: Yeah, so there were there were there's no no yellow face in this movie, which is good.
0: As opposed to Lean's next film, but that is something we, we, we can we'll, talk about We'll talk elsewhere. about later. <laughs> yeah, there were lots of clashes with the British actors. As I said before, uh, Alec Guinness and James Donald felt that the movie had anti-British sentiments, which made them resent the material. Guinness also, once again, he had more of a comedic background, and he kept trying to play Nicholson as... Uh, a more humorous and sympathetic figure with a a sentimental streak that really, really irritated David Lean.
1: But you know what? I feel like you needed that. Like, there's some depth to Nicholson. You understand why he acts the way he does and why he has that, you know, that last minute. It's pretty much too late realization about what he's really been doing.
0: Guinness was mostly afraid that Nicholson was going to come off as dull and unlikable. This climax during the scene where Nicholson is supposed to reflect on his wasted life on the bridge to Saito, Uh, Guinness asked, why am I doing this? And Lean just exploded at him. Uh... As soon as those bits were ended, Lean expressed, and I'm quoting here... (laughs) Now you can all fuck off and go home, you English actors. Thank <laughs> God that I'm starting work tomorrow with an American actor. I said I shall point out that David Lean himself is English.
1: Yes, I was to ask. I'm like, I didn't think he was American. <laughs>
0: to assuage uh, Guinness's insecurities, Lean later screened an hour of rough footage to Guinness and his wife and son. While this was going on, no comments were given to Lean by the family, and they simply thanked him for his time and left. This left Lee and very confused, but later that night, Guinness paid a call to him to tell him that his family thought that River Kwai was the finest performance they've ever seen from him. Later on, Guinness reflected that the scene where he staggers out of the iron box, he is uh, one of his favorite personal performances. He based the gate on his 11-year-old son.
1: And Matthew Guinness had polio, which he thankfully fully recovered from.
0: William Holden's relationship with Lean was a little cleaner. Uh, at the time, he was one of the biggest stars in Hollywood, and he was brought on to give the film some box office appeal. People were pretty miserable at the time that Holden started working, so like an inspirational Coach, in the middle of a sports movie, he gave a pep talk to the disgruntled actors and crew, proclaiming that Lean was one of the finest directors working in the industry, and that River Kwai is a fine novel and a good screenplay, and this is going to be a great movie. So let's just let's just keep working on it.
1: Aw, that's really
0: sweet. He did have to suffer a bit himself. He's a very hair sweet man and <laughs> needed a full body wax for his numerous shirtless scenes.
1: Oh, that poor man. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, apparently he's like Robin Williams, Harry. <laughs> Probably his back,
1: too. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah,
0: he was given $300,000 to appear in the film and 10% of the profits. Ooh,
1: that's a nice deal. At a
0: rate of 50000 a year payout. Yeah, uh, the film was so profitable that the studio was making more off the interest on Holden's unpaid balance than he was getting paid per year. Eventually, he was he had to settle for a lump sum and with future payments going to the relief fund. Uh, However, during the period, Holden fought to prevent TV screenings because uh, his life had taken some nasty turns since then, and he was dependent on River Kwai revenue. And he did suffer a bit during the filming. Uh, the commando scenes were shot in man-made uh, waterways because the real ones were deemed too unsafe. However, the leeches were real. Uh, I hate
1: leeches. I think they're so gross. Like you see, Warden um, like zapping them off with a lit cigarette.
0: Yeah, I-, I hear that if you just use the tobacco juice itself, that's the best way to get leeches off. But that's uh, that's something I've just heard about. I don't know if it's true. All or not. I know is that
1: you use salt.
0: Yeah, the next person I want to talk about in death uh, from an acting performance is uh, Stacey Hoyakama who plays Saito in this.
1: I also, I did some research on him after we were done launching the movie. Um, He was like a big, silent film star. Like, if you look at pictures of him back in, like, the, you know, the 10s and the 20s, he's very handsome.
0: Yeah, He was 68 at the time of the filming of this uh, movie, and he didn't know any English. He had to learn his lines phonetically, and it was often edited scripts that only had his lines. So he doesn't really know what happens to his character while it's going on. And he, obviously, he watched the film afterwards. And as Rachel implied, he has a long career uh, dating back to the 1920s. However, he considered River Kwai to be his best performance.
1: Yeah, he's really good. And, you know, Especially
0: since he learned his parts phonetically.
1: Yeah, and also World War II really hadn't ended that long ago by the time the movie was made. And there's still a lot of, you know, anti-Japanese racism. And Saito has some depth to him. He's not, you know, a one-dimensional yellow peril despot.
0: Apparently, he wasn't the first draft of the film, but Lean didn't want Cider to be like that.
1: That's for the best.
0: And I should note that while River Kwai swept the Oscars more on that later, Hoyakama did get nominated for Best Supporting Actor in both the Oscars and the Golden Globes, and he's like the only person nominated from River Kwai to not win either. Like, everybody else won for everything.
1: That's disappointing. He should have gotten one.
0: One cute anecdote I came up with this is that, I don't know if it, acute is the right word, but during the opening scene where uh, Nicholson and uh, Saito are having their little face off, Saito slaps Guinness in the face and bloodies him. He actually slapped him. It he wa- he wasn't on purpose, but that was real blood, and Guinness just rolled with it and just sort of defiantly stood there without wiping the blood off his face.
1: That's acting. That's some good acting. Acting. Mm-hmm.
0: And after I got some of the shooting stuff out, I wanted to focus specifically on the scene where the bridge was destroyed.
1: Oh yeah, I mean that's why you watch the movie.
0: The bridge is just this big old Chekhov's gun. You're just waiting for it to blow up.
1: Oh yeah.
0: Yeah, it was shot with multiple cameras at once in presence of the local government because they weren't, gonna a, yeah, they, they weren't going to get a yeah, they weren't going to get a second chance to do this. So it had to be done.
1: Yeah, and done well, or else. Yes. They were- Royally bummed.
0: As I mentioned before, the, the bridge cost a quarter million to build, so...
1: In 1950s, buddy.
0: However, the first attempt to blow up the bridge was bungled. One of the cameramen was unable to get out of the way in time on the first take, so the train just had to, like, impotently crash into a generator, and the bridge itself was wrecked in the attempt. It was very quickly repaired and then blown up on the following morning. <laughs> uh, it was then flooded with souvenir hunters who were scrambling after loose timber. <laughs> Yeah, and this was closer to the end of the shoot, so a lot of people had gone home, including Alec Guinness. He didn't get to watch the, bl- uh, the bridge blow up.
1: Oh, man, I would have been so disappointed. I'd be like, I want to watch it in person. I want to watch the bridge blow up. I mean,
0: it's just so cool.
1: Yeah. You spend a lot of
0: time building that bridge, and you, you want to see it blow up.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Although he's probably, you know, relieved to get the hell out of that Legion mosquito jungle.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: While the last scene in the film was very tense, there was some real life tension in that there wasn't any proper place on the location for them to store the footage, so they kept having to ship it back to uh, other locations through freight and, and whatnot, but the negatives of the bridge explosion were lost on an air freight. <laughs> They were found a week later on an airport tarmac in Cairo, miraculously undamaged.
1: That's a small miracle right there.
0: Yeah, that's some suspense. Because of these various delays, especially with the eight-month shoot, the composer of the film, Malcolm Arnold, was given 10 days to write 45 minutes worth of music for it. He called it the worst job he ever had.
1: (laughs) I hope it paid him well.
0: Yeah, and it was well regarded. The score won both a Grammy and an Oscar. Although, we both thought it was a little on the nose.
1: Oh, yeah. Like, some parts where it's just too, like, cheery, traditional, you know, stereotypical, well, and this movie was made by British people, but I'm gonna say, anyway, American-style heroic movie, and it's just too much, like, light brass
0: yeah, a lot of a lot of <laughs> rousing John Philip Sousa derived <laughs> for, uh, for the Soldier Boys marching for our freedom. I do like the bit that whenever Nicholson is a sort of subsuming to his obsession with the with, with building the bridge, the Woodwinds come up because they don't like him. They start <laughs> swirling. Yeah,
1: it's like, everybody got that. This isn't a good
0: thing. <laughs> I, it's an obvious cue, but I still appreciated it.
1: Yeah, I mean. The music's good. I went to a concert at Tanglewood back in 2007 that had John Williams conducting David Lean's score, and they had a whole section just of um, Bridge on the River Kwai. And, of course, on the big screen bo- um, above the orchestra, they showed the bridge blowing up.
0: However, yeah, if you're talking about the music and Bridge on the River Kwai, you have to mention the bit where the POWs march in while <laughs> whistling uh, Colonel Bogey. Which I first encountered in parody form in Spaceballs.
1: Yeah, me too! (laughs) Uh,
0: Apparently this came about because the extras couldn't march in time. There weren't actual professional extras in this film in order to save money. Spiegel insisted on them just using random crew member and locals who wanted to be in the movie. (laughs) Nice. But yeah, none of them could march in time, which really irritated David Lean. So one of the guys who started whistling Colonel Bogey in order to give them a rhythm. Although Lean were a bit uh, apparently wanted to use Hitler has only got one ball, but um, Spiegel,
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: Spiegel shot that down considering it too vulgar. Now, if um, any of you want to get back to the historical accuracy of it, uh, several POWs were quizzed on whether or not anyone ever marched in whistle time. During their POW stays, and they said no, this was invented for the film.
1: I mean, you know what? If you got to get people to march in time, it, it works.
0: Moving on to the reception of this film, it was a big old smash hit. As I said before, it is the highest-grossing film of 1957 in the United States, Canada, and England. Japanese audiences had some qualms, unsurprisingly. However, most of the criticisms surrounded uh, the film's depiction of Japanese engineers as being incompetent, pointing out. <laughs> Real-world instances of Japanese engineers in World War II being hyper-competent.
1: Yeah. That's
0: the part that stuck in their craw. Uh, it won Oscars for not only the stuff that I mentioned, but director, cinematography, editing. Alec Guinness picked up his uh, acting, uh, uh, first acting Oscar for it, and it won Best Picture.
1: Yeah, and I think that when it comes to Alec Dennis, if not for Star Wars, this would be the movie he's best known for.
0: Oh, inarguably.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've seen him in other things and in, like, recorded stage shows of Shakespeare, but nope, this is it. And, I, and when you talk about William Holden getting some money from the gross of the movie... I wonder if that gave Alec Guinness the idea to get some of the profits from Star Wars.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that set him off. I don't know if it's this specific film, but I'm sure he had heard about back-end deals before he signed on for Star Wars.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) River Kwai has been referenced a whole bunch of times. It's in We Didn't Start the Fire, because of course it is. Uh, The aforementioned Parks and Rec episode. Interestingly enough, it's Warren Buffett's favorite movie. And Will Smith has cited it as a core influence on his acting, which I never would have guessed.
1: Yeah, I never would have guessed that either.
0: And with that out of the way, let's, uh, let's talk about the thematics uh, of this film.
1: Oh, yeah, there's a lot of themes going on here.
0: Yeah, one thing you wanted to talk about was the culture clash, which you had already referenced a little earlier. Yeah. But the other yeah, must be more you want to bring up there.
1: I, I think that so much of the conflict kind of comes from the fact that it's a multinational cast. Of characters. You've got, you know, the American exceptionalism, Shears. You have the nice, endearing Canadian. Um, and then all the stuffy Brit. Especially, um, there's one thing that I wanted to talk about, especially with Nicholson, is that the way he must have been a colonial officer in the British Raj, especially later um, on when he's in the hot box, he says that he doesn't want um, the officers to work like coolies, which is a derogatory term for a laborer. It was very commonly used in India.
0: Another thing uh, I think that is very American about Shears is that he doesn't let his lack of qualifications make up (laughs) for his inability to get in there. He thinks that if he acts confident enough, nobody will notice.
1: Yeah, that's that's very American of him. And the first time I watched this movie, like I knew how it ended vaguely. I knew the bridge was gonna blow up. But I was not expecting Shears to die at the end. Spoiler alert. Um, because I was like, he's the American hero. This movie, you know, is gonna have a, a triumphant ending. And it, it it's a fitting ending. I don't, I don't think it's a downer ending, but it's a good ending to the story it's telling.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't say that Bridge on the River Choir is a, is a subversive film, but it does have little bits like that. You have the American exceptionalist guy who just sort of fakes until he makes it with quiet confidence. Not so quiet confidence, rather. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, he gets blown away with everyone else.
1: Yeah. I, I think that even though this movie wasn't praised for its historical accuracy, I feel compared to other war movies that came out around the same time that I've seen, it's a little bit more cynical. It's not quite as fluffy, you know. Shears doesn't go home and marry the sexy nurse or anything.
0: Yeah, once again, we are far from deer hunter territory. The producers downplayed the suffering of the POWs in order to make the film more approachable to to Western audiences.
1: But it is clear that even if it isn't, you know, historically accurate suffering, they're not having a good time there at all. And there's also the class issue in the background, again, with Nicholson's character. He's got the, you know, the received pronunciation accent. He's an officer. And most of the men that he's probably in charge of commanding are all working class conscripts. That Even though there is only one named and speaking Australian, you know, a colonial, mm-hmm. you've got that undercurrent there. There's sort of how Shears can kind of bounce his way through the class system because, A, he's American and he has that sort of level of confidence. And then you've also got Joyce, who's also a colonial
0: and not only is he Canadian in that he uses words like a boot
1: And he's from Montreal.
0: He's also eager to prove himself. Like His first scene where he's interviewed by the officers over whether he should go on the commando mission, they ask him if he could envision himself killing a man with a knife, and he says, I think I can, but I don't know. Yeah. Which seems awfully Canadian of him. Yeah,
1: it really does. And ultimately, he fails the first time um, to kill the... Looks like a teenager himself, the poor Japanese soldier in the jungle. And then um, Warden has to do it for him. And then later on, he's the one that kills Saito.
0: Yeah, his character arc is, he has to will up the manhood to murder, which is, yeah. yeah, the very old-school war movie type character motivation, I'd yeah, say. Yeah,
1: and he, too, he dies like everyone else, unfortunately.
0: One thing that I definitely wanted to talk about is how this film plays into the creative evolution of David Lean as a director. hmm Now... You could split him into half, basically. The first half of his career, uh, especially with uh, when he was making English films, largely small character-driven dramas, most famous being Grief Encounter, which is, I think is a lovely film. Uh, I figured that was going to be the first David Lean film that I talked about on this show, but you know, we did River Kwai instead. But it's still definitely a candidate. And you'd have a hard time convincing me it was made by the same guy, even though some elements are still in here. River Kwai was Lean's first CinemaScope film. Like, if you're not familiar with the term, CinemaScope has this big, sloping, wide uh, aspect ratio in order to give this grand, epic, what would now be IMAX uh, level of mm-hmm. scale to things. And Lean still uses medium shots for the character moments. You can't really do close-ups, because if you do that with CinemaScope aspect ratio, you can just start counting the character's nose hairs.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: But as he keeps going further and further into his career, he starts dismissing the character parts and starting to focus more on the spectacle. His next film is Lawrence of Arabia, which even if you're not familiar with Hollywood history, you probably know at least in passing that it's kind of your go-to choice for your grandiose cinematic epics of the golden age of Hollywood.
1: Yeah, it's a, another one of very long bladder-busting movies. I, I've never seen it start to finish, but I've seen parts of Lawrence of Arabia. You know, it was on TV, and, you know, it, my parents are my granddad. Let's watch, let's watch some Lawrence of Arabia.
0: <laughs> it was even longer and more ponderous than River Kwai, and made even more money and won even more Oscars and was even more beloved. So Liam just started... Leaning into it even more, Doctor Zhivago was the follow-up to that.
1: I've seen parts of Doctor Zhivago as well.
0: That one cleaned up at the box office and uh, at award seasons as well. But even then and today, people start talking about how it, it might be a little too self-indulgent.
1: Then when does the other one I've seen all the way through, um, Passage to India?
0: All right in between when did that come out. Yeah, his follow-up to Doctor Zhivago uh, was Ryan's daughter which is when people started turning on him. Because that one is a small character-driven drama in the background of the Irish uh, War for Independence, although it focuses on this couple. But it's still done in that big swinging dick cinemascope aspect ratio. So you have these huge, gorgeous background shots of tiny people talking to each other <laughs> about their feelings.
1: Yeah, it doesn't quite work that well.
0: And critically, he was roasted on a spit for that one. Yeah. Uh, Roger Ebert, in particular, was particularly nasty to Ryan's <laughs> daughter and he didn't make another movie for 15 years, and then he made Passage to India.
1: Yeah, Passage to India, I've read the book, as I read it in my my post-colonial literature class, who was taught by one of my all-time favorite professors, who was from India, and her father actually remembers life under the British Raj. So she was the perfect person to teach a class about it. And she hates the movie Passage to India. Probably one of the reasons that she does is that for a movie that casts like people from the areas it's trying to, you know, depict, you've got Alec Guinness in Brownface, and it's so obvious that it's Alec Guinness in Brownface.
0: Alec Guinness is also in Brownface in Lawrence of Arabia.
1: Oh, I always forget that too. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you bringing that up makes me wonder how Irish people feel about Ryan's daughter, because it's about the Irish struggle for independence after World War One, and it's made by an Englishman. They must have feelings about that. I, I don't know. There's this
1: one scene, and it's, it's just terribly awful, but darkly... When I say darkly funny, I mean, like, pitch black, dark funny. Um, there's a scene in this show called Another Period where it's sort of like a parody of Down Nabby, but filmed in the style of um, Keeping Up with the Kardashians, where one of the characters goes to a minstrel show where everyone is in McFace. So they're basically supposed to be parodying the Irish. And it's just, I wonder if that's how they felt, that it was like McFace.
0: Yeah, I couldn't say. And, uh, one other thing I wanted to talk about was the undercurrents of the motivations behind Nicholson, which there are a number of ways oh, you can interpret yeah. that. So many. Yeah, one thing that comes to me is just the human need to make something that people are never satisfied. That's just one of our biological compulsions. We always need a hill to conquer. We always need to be able to do something. And this is something i come across in a bunch of sources, most recently, the book Bullshit Jobs, where there's just so many people who work in industries where they don't actually make anything. They're serving like minor administrative tasks that don't seem to contribute anything to society. And that's what makes them miserable. Like if you work construction, you can point at a building and seeing, saying like, I did roofing on that or I installed the plumbing. I made that. Maybe someone else would have worked on it if I didn't, but I made it my way, and it looks that way because of my contribution to it, and that means something. Whereas if you are just going over like PowerPoint slides and then passing them off to someone else who's then going to edit the PowerPoint slides again before it's then passed off to some other administrative committee who has another meeting about it, You don't really get that anymore. And I do think that plays at least a little bit into Nicholson, especially when he gives that monologue on the bridge about how he doesn't think his life has amounted to anything, but he's built this bridge now.
1: Yeah, like he even puts a sign on the bridge that says that it was built by, you know, the British soldiers here. And I think that it's a start. Nicholson had the right idea that the men need order and discipline for survival purposes, But I think that that just should have been that they're going to be more organized about disrupting the building of the bridge. they got to be more careful so that the Japanese don't get in on what they're doing. But instead, he ends up building a pretty damn good bridge for the enemy to use.
0: As opposed to what Nicholson's real-life counterpart did.
1: Yeah, which was like, we're going to build some shitty bridges and we're going to feed it to termites.
0: At this point, I should probably point out that Boole considered Nicholson to be sort of an amalgam of the various Nazi-collaborating French traitors that he despised so much.
1: Yeah, he's very, like, the Chamberlain.
0: I'm not entirely sure why Boole decided to change the nationality from the... French people that he worked with and also was to English people. I, I tried to d- dig around and, and, and find a, a specific reason for that, but I couldn't.
1: I don't know, maybe he thought it would make it more marketable.
0: Yeah, it could be. Yeah.
1: I don't know, I think that this movie has such a large cast, it's really kind of hard to decide if there's a main character or not. You could argue that it's Saito.
0: Yeah, you could. I mean, there are a lot of characters in this. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, I I think you could just boil it down to the three.
1: Yeah, Nicholson cheers Saito. And none of them them win. The bridge gets destroyed. There's really only Clipton there, who is now the commanding officer of the wounded. Like, what's going to happen now? They still have another two years of warfare to get through.
0: Yeah, the, the film just kind of does a slight of hand on you, because when you're watching it, it feels very old school, and you're thinking that it's going to be an old school war movie that just ends with a rousing victory for the good guys. But it ends up being rather pyric, which I'm guessing shocked audiences in
1: 1957. Yeah, I, 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 was, I wasn't, expe- like I said earlier, I wasn't expecting Shears to die or anything. Like, I knew that Nicholson fell on the plunger because it was in the montage that played when I saw John Williams conducting David Lean movies soundtrack. So I I don't know, I think it's a a good movie. It's definitely something that I will probably return to, but it is very long. So you and I, we we had like planned this for, for a while. Like usually we watch the movie and then we go into my room, our little studio and record. But this is the first time where we didn't do it directly afterwards because the movie was so long and we needed to go to bed.
0: Yeah, it took us a couple of weeks to just gather the spoons to commit to this. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, we'll watch like 30 consecutive episodes on streaming, but to make a commitment to something that's equally as long, but... (laughs) One storyline—that's just a line we won't cross without thinking about
1: it for a it's bit. A sl- it's a slow burn, like, and I think that if Bridge on the River Kwai was made today, a they wouldn't have built a real bridge; it would have been in front of a green screen, and I feel like the movie would have been an hour shorter.
0: I don't necessarily agree with you on that mm-hmm. because Michael Bay Transformers movies are Godfather length. If anything, uh, if anything, movies are getting longer these days.
1: Yeah, but. I enjoy it. I, I think it's a very good movie. It has a great cast. I'll, I'll, keep, I'll, keep, I'll keep coming back to it. I'm glad that I picked it for my pick this week.
0: Okay, well, that's everything in my notes. If there isn't anything left uh, on your end, I think we can call it an episode.
1: Yeah, I think this is an episode. I mean, if you haven't seen Bridge on the River Kwai, I know we've spoiled the hell out of it for you. Still, you know, check it out, you know, get some snacks, schedule some bathroom breaks. It's a good movie.
0: Good night, everybody.
1: Bye.